This episode of InsureTech Insider is proudly brought to you by Deloitte. They are focused on uniting the bright ideas from InsureTech with large-scale traditional carriers and everything in between, bringing, of course, their wealth of industry experience and technology know-how into the mix, helping to drive the pace of change and transform insurance as we know it. Welcome to InsureTech Insider, coming to you live from 11FS office in WeWork London. Today, well, unfortunately, Nigel was otherwise engaged, so couldn't make it along today. But I'm joined by two very awesome guests. So, as I think you'll probably guess by now, my name is David Breer, and I'm joined by James York, who is the founder and CEO of Worry and Peace. Hey, James, how are you doing? Hi. Yeah, great. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. You're, yeah, well, I was just mocking you a minute ago for being cold and wearing a big coat inside this office, but it's like winter wonderland outside right now so that kind of makes sense right yes and i like to be eccentric indeed well like flamboyance is something i love in a man um and next up we have coming for the debut on insurtech insider but no stranger to coming into a podcast that we run it's sarah kachansky how's it going sarah it's good thank you my second one this week i'm racking them up i know well yeah you're like we need a desk and like a plinth and a like everything in the audio in the uh, in the office right now for you it's um it's getting to be somewhat of a habit right <laughs> definitely indeed um right let's Let's kick things off. And let's start with you, James. So tell us a little bit more about what you do. What is Worry and Peace and um, how long have you guys been about? Yeah, great. I'd be, I'd be happy to. Um, I mean, I suppose in the most basic level, Worry and Peace is an intermediary authorised by the FCA a couple of years ago. Um, we spent probably the first 18 months of our existence trying to convince insurers to work with a, a little new startup. Um, we're it's independent. always a challenge. Yeah, yeah. Challenge, oh, right? oh yeah, oh yeah. But that's a whole other podcast. Um, yeah, we, we're independently run. So we didn't go out there and, and sell the vision and, and raise money. We've kind of done it the, the bootstrap, super bootstrap kind of way. Um, and really our, our, the problem I guess we, we're looking to solve is to create an inventory of everything insurance. So not necessarily distinguishing between, you know, a specialist line and a, a small business line. Um, I call it the PDF economy. And uh, I think we've kind of got to this point where the moniker for that mindset is stretchy inventory. So do we need to sell it ourselves? Can we stock something virtually, yeah. I, I suppose, in essence? So that's that's been the, the initial mindset. And, you know, the brand was just a URL I kind of conjured and came up with. Um, it was available. I bought all the ones I could find. <laughs> and, you know, it, it, I've kind of fallen in love with it after I designed the logo and, and did it all kind of myself. So, Well, we've, we've talked on Fintech Insider a bunch of times about naming of things, haven't we, Sarah? But, um, like, actually, you make it mean something. Like, you you know, it, uh, it's almost like um, Jason uh, kind of shows off quite often, doesn't he, saying he named Monzo and Starling and all these different types of things. But, like, you as a company give a name meaning don't you you do and and our meaning is it's it's got tongue-in-cheek just like our brand but it also has a serious side to it you know worry and peace that i'm very militant on the plus rather than an ampersand and i know people get really really upset about it but it's it's an equation right you can't ever get full peace of mind um for your worries and there's a budgeting thing there's a coverage element so that equation is just it's really nicely balanced they're two really easy words that most people around the world who speak english as a first or second language are going to get um and the equals is kind of the customer service that's invisible behind it that galvanizes the whole brand um but obviously the tongue-in-cheek element of it is that most insurance terms are like 
war and peace right so um that's you know obviously the thing that we need to eradicate so there's a lot of hidden messages in there and, and that sounds really like after the fact but but when i came up with the url I, I was looking for things to do i collect urls anyway i don't know why it's a stupid thing to collect isn't it but um it's quite an expensive habit though. yeah it is actually it is when you sell the odd one it works out um but yeah it, it just really worked for me and, and it took a lot of selling actually to because you know this is a family business too and you know that that question of nepotism obviously we can leave that for another day but um my family are in insurance and they had a really traditional mindset so when I was trying to convince us all to to look at this new way of doing things um, the, the brand story had to come out then so it really did come from the origin and in terms of like you say sort of bootstrapping to get this moving that's that's not a um, it's not a, a, a fashionable way of doing a kind of a startup these days you know everybody loves that kind of VC story and the VC sort of pitch type thing um, but for companies who can do that, that's I think that's the best way. You know, it's what we've done with 11FS as well, and it it feels like the best way to go to market because you're starting a business. You know, like you have to make it make business sense. So yeah, well well done you for for making that work. Thank you. What is the business model behind it? How do you actually make this uh, make this move into the market? And uh, you know, given that you're bringing about a, a new way, then how are you monetizing this? Yeah, so I mean, it's it's fairly straightforward. Um, if you're going to stock products, if you if you look at insurance, it's intangible. Someone like Amazon stocks something tangible. It's fairly binary. You buy it off them. You either keep it or send it back. There's no umbilical cord attached to it, really, apart from obviously how they um, create algorithms to sell you more stuff. But again, it's each time it's binary. Insurance has got that that easy to sell, but then tough to serve kind of mindset. Um, so from our perspective, we've really kind of looked at okay, how can we stock everything and create that one vision that one dashboard of insurance and it doesn't have to be your own stock you can do exactly as amazon's done that's the that's where the reference comes in they've they've been very good at creating platforms as we're going to talk about um bringing third-party sellers and liberating the customer to choose and be quite fungible about who they acquire services from mm-hmm. um the, the difference with insurance unfortunately which is where worry and peace kind of has, has a, a different spin is that i see those as two completely different business models the the, the selling and the after mm-hmm. and that's why we have pouch and in theory pouch should be detachable from worry and peace and and if I was a founder of another business in a different vertical of insurance selling something super specialist then I should the the idea is I should be comfortable putting an icon for pouch on that site because it's not worry and peace effectively Trojan horsing into my business because that's that's our selling platform and pouch is our kind of platform that we tie to Mm -hmm. so there's that equality in the in the consumer's eyes the consumer is the center of it sounds good so what's the longer term vision for this where where do you see you you sort of getting in the next three to five years I guess Um, I think our main goal would be to to take pouch as as a lead out thing a lead out app into another market because uh, and that's where I think the when we realized actually we don't need to be regulated to be a platform, we can take the pouch platform into markets and then follow with the Worry and Peace brand afterwards to, to create brokerage. So I think the USA would be the place to go for that. It's um, it's a tough market. I mean, it's state by state. Um, they love some insurance over there. They right? do they yeah. love insurance. It's a different mindset, you know, lower churn, um, you know, very rigid rating structure, which I think in some ways helps uh, to innovate because you know what you're getting and there's equality between the sellers. Um, but that would be our goal to take it somewhere else. And, and But I think, you know, being realistic, it, it's customer numbers at the moment in the UK to fund the business. If we don't raise any external capital, then we have to, you know, wash our own faces. So um, our next target is about 25,000 customers. And don't ask me how many we've got now. <laughs> the press release is coming out shortly because we're not VC funded. I think there's a, 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 there's a validity, a credibility element to releasing when you've got a, a certain milestone. And we've hit one recently. And to other people, it might not look great. But for me and two staff and a, and a 
a super bootstrapped kind of business, it's it's a real milestone for us. And yeah, for sure. Hopefully, we'll. Well, you'll you'll have to tell us the number off air anyway, and then we'll uh, see. But um, but I th- I think it's a you know a sign of a sort of continual trend that we're probably seeing in insurance and actually in banking as well in terms of the sort of platformification of of everything that we're doing. So you know maybe we should get into that and uh, talk about what it means to be insurance as a platform. Yeah. So we're seeing a bit of a rise of what we sort of call, and this is not going to be very good for sort of audio people, but as a platform, and there's lots of sort of air quotes going on for for everybody who's listening to this one. Um, So really, I I guess kind of getting into what does that mean in the insurance space? Do you want to start us off with that? Yeah, I mean, for me, when when you say it, and obviously this is from my view of the world, it's, um, it's kind of a trifle of of potential platforms if that makes sense I like travel because you know like with every um, industry insurance has a supply chain and for me there's there's a, a series of interlocking platform opportunities and running through that would be um, the, the money so there's a money platform opportunity too in my view whether it's lending or the flow yeah and, and is that what's appealing to it so how, like how is this because generally like distribution and production has been you know the big boys have had the sort of stranglehold on this in terms of the 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 process for insurance but so how is it coming about that now we're seeing this different model in terms of distribution i mean i'm going to be candid and say i don't think we are seeing it yet i think we're seeing the the, the, the origin of it maybe the start the, the first feet in the journey um perhaps people are getting a bit ahead of themselves and looking at blockchain before they've you know got the easier wins the, yeah. There are many easier wins than blockchain. Yeah. I don't. I think even Simon would agree with me there. Yeah. There's you know boring stuff like version control on documents for delegated authorities and how you do your due diligence on uh, you know a binding authority or an agency. You know, reg tech is is probably you know a good area for that. But arguably, some of the stuff we're seeing, particularly in insurance, is actually cutting layers out as well. So if you look at somebody like Munich Re and how much money they've put into what are actually customer customer whether that's consumer or or, or business uh, facing channels, which historically they haven't really had, they're actually you know in terms of in terms of becoming a platform, they they are a platform in the sense that they are funding and backing all of these different companies, which may look different to your average consumer, but actually they've got the same you know money and 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 you know power underwriting them at that end as well. Well, so I think you know the idea of as a platform and insurance, as you say, has many different connotations. There's the the ones that are obvious to the average consumer, where you go on and you see lots of different types of insurance, and you can pick and choose what suits you. And then you've got the kind of that back and middle and back end that's also starting to shift. I mean, I would argue that the reinsurers and the distributors are moving much faster than the guys in the middle right now. You may have a different perspective on that. Do you that, know, I think the Munich Reads is a great example because for me, and again, you know, thump me if I'm on a, on a off track here, but for me, a platform should be somewhat egalitarian or, you know, mm-hmm. if I've got enough money to play or it's free to play for everyone, it's equal. It's, how, it's what you use the platform for that, that effectively is your power and your differentiator. Munich Re is not a platform because it's a closed environment. They're enabling for sure, but that platform is very limited. Um, take us, for example, we probably wouldn't be appealing to Munich Re because we're we're a choice player. So we want you to have, as a consumer, choice. And Munich Re would want you to use their supply chain. So that, in that sense, I, I guess it's the start of it. But when an insurer realises that, you know, they need to open up and be fully kind of, what's the word, permeable, I guess that's when it's going to start really kicking in. I mean, arguably, they're the same as Amazon then, because Amazon is controlling your money and how you're paying and the payment services and the distribution and if you're an Amazon Prime customer it literally controls your life um, it does every day so, yeah, I bow down to the so, Amazon gods so, so th- I think I think there is a parallel there but I, I see your point about the, um, the I, and I suppose that brings us on to like why people like why consumers like the platform element is that choice and flexibility you can build something that actually suits you and that 
kind of feeds into another trend that we talk about all the time, which is personalization. Mm. I, I guess, though, doesn't it break the type of communication that people would actually have? So the traditional players and the the communication, this, and this is actually the, you know, the, the argument against things like marketplace banking in the banking context is actually, doesn't it break the model of upsell, cross-sell for traditional insurance companies because you know there are whole lines of insurance that are are not profitable but actually are sort of um, created to have completeness of, of uh, you know basket or wallet or whatever what would be you want an to example put. of that because it's so not travel pet those things are not particularly okay. uh, you know pet insurance particularly has, has never been one of them that has been you know particularly sort of um, profit profitable for, for people in terms of that space mm-hmm. I kind of remember van insurance as well being a really really sort of low profit one but again this is back in I don't know, 2008 when I was working at Aviva. So I kind of feel like it, it does this sort of break that model if we get into the point where platforms are actually controlling the distribution of these things. I know we've seen, you know, reasonable sort of decimation of the um, the profitability of uh, certain lines of insurance because of things like money supermarkets. So does this change the dynamic of it? You know, are we going to see people being creators of products and distributors of products? And yeah. does it fundamentally change the way in which the products are going to be created to be distributed? Or? Do you guys you do, do you guys build any products or are you literally a distributor or, or do you have that kind of element where it's if you have 75 people come to you and say, we want pet insurance for a Cocker Spaniel that lives in Harrow, you'll go out and try and find a way of doing that. I mean, it doesn't have to be that narrow, obviously. Or are you actually a dis- purely a distributor of... There's a lot of good questions in there. Yeah, we, we build mm-hmm. in in simple terms yeah we curate which I suppose is the best thing so we would go to market that makes it non-advised because we don't offer a choice of say five and say pick this one it's the best and no we wouldn't problem hunt and aggregate that because that's kind of um, in insurance be probably you know troubled me thrice I've got to find the people that've got the problem I've got to then find the solution and then I've got to sell it back to them and in that intervening period how do I know where they've gone what their their needs may have changed so for me that model kind of doesn't work ironically the UK if we we view it as a, a lens mainland EU has a great system where you can be onboarded as a customer very quickly to become you know broker of record letter mm-hmm. and it's a system that Knip and WeFox have used very effectively in the UK we can technically we can do that right? I could find a hundred thousand Aviva car insurance customers having an agency with Aviva go to them with letters of authority and say hey you know these guys want better terms in reality that would be alien to, to modern customers and Aviva I'm not even sure their agency team would know what to do if I, if I had that so th- there are issues to, to those models but um yeah, you know, we, we, we build and we make, and it's very slow progress. It typically takes six to 11 months per line. What's the impact of this? So if you're, if you're, if you're both building your own and, you know, and providing a variety, you're not, you know, a, a seller of only, say, for example, Aviva policies, what, what's the fallout for, for, the old, for the legacy players here? Like, what, what, what you know, if, if, if this is where we're going and the, the, the success and the consumer interface... It's going to be these platforms. What does that mean for your access, your Aviva, your standard life? Anybody else you want to think of who's a huge, a huge player in this space? They they need to realise that the third way is underway. If that makes sense, you know, my viewpoint of insurance distribution is ironically is not either broker, stroke, intermediary, or direct. It, it's the middle, and there should be zero friction between one of my customers and the underwriter. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I often pitch the, the way we operate to clients. Say, if you've got a problem point, like there's been an issue with the claim service. You know, our scripts always present our 
brand as a, a retailer effectively and on the customer's side if something goes wrong and the, the underwriter effectively is the maker, the manufacturer. Um, and in that situation, you require the underwriters to start engaging with that brand opportunity and even if they want to, start having conversations, for example, with an SME so that they don't they reduce churn, they don't lose the business. If there's a relationship in that environment and we can broker that, we're not a middleman anymore, we're a deal maker, we're an engager we're, and that, that platform element wraps around it. So from our perspective, everything we've got in our pipeline is looking for for those tools to be enabled and it's obviously the seller is going to be changing the culture to get people to um, you know to take those tools and use them and you know you know Dave as well as I do that it's tough for insurers to change and ultimately what works in a startup community things like sweat equity stock warrants if I went to an insurer with a you know effectively a stock in my business they would not know where to put it they're, they're just the, the the conduits of decision making aren't in place um, so there's lots of great things that can be done but the insurers aren't ready and the long and short of it is that they're missing opportunities because actually there's probably a friendlier environment waiting for them than they really realise. Mm. Yeah, the level of, I guess, data in this sense that, and, and the understanding of the, the businesses that you'd be servicing, uh, you know, the individuals that you'd be actually servicing uh, would be significantly increased if they did move into this space, I guess. But there's almost like a paralysis of data in insurance anyway, right? Oh. Are they are they in a position, because this seems like quite a, um emotional step to mm. take like are they at the point where they really have this level of sophistication to move into this you know I guess the particularly on the incumbent side of things it feels like you know data has been something that's been probably more of a, a problem really than uh, than a, a real sort of help when it comes to a, glacier, a personalization it? perspective well, as it melts what appears yeah. in the glacier indeed um, yeah, yeah I think mammoths, uh, if right? you make it if you make it simple like uh, you know most insurers now have a marketing team that can use Twitter or Facebook right if your platform is simple enough it should be suitable for for those insurers that are working on it from our perspective the reason we haven't necessarily talked about the data is because as you say it does there's a lot of data already there and I think often it's used as a selling point to raise reputation for a for a raise itself and from our perspective we haven't needed that so we've steered clear of it we've we've focused on you know new aspects of data uh, such as if an insurer was on our platform in the future, technically they should be able to f- to receive signals when an incumbent customer is considering to leave. And that data they don't have at the moment. It's about the information they don't have that I'm kind of looking for way to mine. Is it about the information? Well, I think, uh, you just actually covered it with the file with that sentence. I say, is it about the data they don't have or is it they don't know how to use it? Um, and I guess the, the big technology that I've heard all the big um, insurers talk about is AI and, the, and machine learning. And basically what they mean is we finally realise we have all this data. How do we use it to, to keep ourselves in the game how do we use it to to make sure we can we can compete with guys like yourself because you're obviously serving the customers better and giving them what they want more quickly so I mean how is is that the way forward is that something that you kind of you, you have a personal belief in or is it you know this this kind of machine crunching AI backed insurance industry or is that just a part of it as far as you're concerned I think it's definitely part of the toolkit I wouldn't it wouldn't be my lead mm-hmm. um, in any sense and that's not to, to pour water on anyone that is doing that from my perspective ironically I guess you're bootstrapped though so you're not looking for funding right so if you were you might be saying AI is the biggest thing ever it's the same problem in big big bold letters and sending me a press release normally I don't think I still would do that because I'm belligerent but um, I think it's it's a chicken and egg scenario right you've got to build the resource so it can be mined with AI and and for me we're focused on building a resource and and a true platform then would allow someone with AI machine learning skills to to, to use that or let let the insurers use it so that's our focus Um, I guess um, going back a few notches um, human comes into it if you look at the big tech firms at the moment all of them have 
a high street presence. And I just saw today, you know, a great picture of Amazon's Black Friday store. Yeah. You know, if we're looking at these big companies and going, oh, wow, look how great they use tech. And then we ignore the fact that they're buying Whole Foods and they're getting retail units. We're missing a trick. You know, the Apple store environment is a church. It's a cathedral of branding. It's not about trying to sell. It's about image and customer service. So from my perspective, we view very heavily what we're doing in the, the lens of the future of getting on the high street potentially or getting in face-to-face environments when we do engage with customers even face-to-face all we hear is insurance isn't human enough so going back to your original question does ai make the customer feel more engaged in a better relationship i'd argue perhaps as part of an ingredient but i, I don't think it's the, the magic bullet so it's it's the story that ai can actually help the humans be better at what they do so free if, them up to yeah. build relationship yeah so so what you're suggesting is that the human element of insurance in that sense is actually the not the customer service like it's customer service it's some, you're ringing up and you're saying how do I file a claim or this has happened or how do you help me with that and then that customer service agent has an AI platform which is like, I can see who you are what you've done where your data's gone okay this is what you need to do um, it, you know when you're talking about the human element of insurance is that, is that what you're looking at is that what you mean or it is, is it yeah. if you go back to, to the way I view insurance is that, that selling bit and that using bit mm-hmm. The, the using bit is, is really a fundamental for branding. You are, you're going to make or break your brand there. If something goes wrong, you know, we've had claim situations where, you know, a, a customer has phoned us up and said, I, I don't like who the claims person is trying to put me in touch with. And instantly, you know, we're, that's it. We're on, a, we're on that like a, you know, whip it yeah. because that's an opportunity to reinforce what we've been paid for. Um, if a customer has, you know, phones in, they've been mugged and they've got a crime reference number, again, as a moment for kindness. Well, so there's a very, emotional, there's exactly. a very emotional element to, to insurance because whenever something happens that you need to claim for, it's never a nice thing. <laughs> Whatever it is, it's never, as you say, worry and peace. So We have to be, the, if you think about it, there's always a good cop, bad cop. The, the underwriter and the insurer have to be a bad cop and not because they're protecting their profit, but in my view, and the way I always explain to customers as well, is they're protecting the pool. Mm. They're actually protecting you mm. so that you don't have to pay too much in the aggregate over time and your premium if everything worked correctly your premium should keep coming down over time but it doesn't work correctly because there are bad people so we're the good cop we can understand the emotion of it and and support that but the underwriter has to be the bad cop and be a bit more robotic and emotionless Mm. Um, and that should work really well and that's why middle people middle men whatever you want to call them are actually really relevant still they shouldn't be cut out because insurance needs an arbitrator because it has a terrible reputation and it, it can't be the thing it needs to be to build better relationship Mm, I don't think computers are necessarily going to fix that, are they? I think the uh, the sort of empathy, as you say, of a, from a claim perspective, or the understanding through the process of that, or even just ensuring that actually you're you're getting what you need to feel like you're fully covered. You know, this is about like insurance is about peace of mind to a certain degree, and actually the peace of mind that you've got the right thing for you and for your family or for your stuff uh, is you know is a, a great thing in its sense. So, but like this all sounds like too wonderful though. Like, what's the catch? What's <laughs> What's the problem here? Like platforms must have some sort of downfall in terms of like from a, uh, particularly from an insurance perspective, there must be something that is different or like, is this just the future and like get get with the plan? I mean, I, I wonder if there are, uh, if this is the way everything's going and everything becomes on a platform yeah. and, you know, it's, it's digital, digitally served or digitally sold, do you instantly cut people out who don't have access to a computer? Do you, that's always my question with this kind of stuff because I know everybody... There'll always be an A plan. Always, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, but, I mean, I, my gosh, I guess... It's going to be a my mum or your mum story. Right? <laughs> it's, it's a your mum's turn, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, the, the, but I guess... What's, is the way around that then, okay, we build everything on a platform, but then we open a shop and in our shop, we have lots of tiles on the wall and you go in and pick your services using 
pretty pictures on the wall. I don't know, I'm thinking you're, or an iPad, you know. I love that idea, I'm writing this down. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the thing about insurance intermediaries, I, I suspect, they've always been the innovators, if I'm honest. Um, that's not to say insurers can't or don't, but they've had brokers to kind of do that mostly for them. They bear the marketing costs, they get paid on delivery. So it's a, it's a good asset to have. Um, so insurers should should kind of relinquish that at their peril. But yeah, you're, you're, you know, you're absolutely right. I guess the, the, the final question here we're, we're trying to wrap up is like, if this is, if we've decided, we've kind of decided between us, right, this is the future of really? the way insurances work. We, we all believe you're going to go to a platform, whichever it might be. And, you know, you're either an Amazon person or an eBay person or an Etsy person. I've got person. my baby brain back, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, then, you know, if, if, if my platform is Worry and Peace, and, and as far as I understand it, your your pouch product is where I keep all my different insurance from different insurers, right? So, so I have an Aviva one, a Standard Life one. There are a million other insurers out there. I can't remember any of them right now. Um, you know, that's that's your kind of, and you love it. And you've also, because you've got this technological back end, you can serve people quicker and faster. But and that means you've also got money left to have people and they can be empathetic on the phone. Why, why, isn't, it, why isn't it everywhere yet? What's the problem there? What's the downside? It, it's hard. It's expensive. <laughs> and there's a lot of people kind of, um, if you were trying to have a conversation at a party and the music was so loud, you couldn't hear the other person, they might be telling you, you know, I love you <laughs> and you wouldn't yeah. be able to hear right it could be the moment of your life and that is something that all the insurance startups are going to have to get through um, you look at there was a big insurer that released a big an excellent app and it, it's it, by all accounts not delivered as much as they would have hoped because it's still expensive mm-hmm. so I, I guess the key for us is to uh, God, it sounds cheesy, but focus on the product and make sure that gets um, you know perfected as best it can, and make sure we have a, a groundswell, a healthy, sustainable number of happy customers, and then look for that moment where you realise you're at the top of the hill and you can roll down a bit quicker and, and get virility, which is the key element to it. But a, a lot of the VCs I know are looking for people that can eradicate that cost of acquisition issue or that brand creation issue. That's a shortcut that just can't happen. And you know, I hear a lot about defensibility in insurtech. You know, it, it's a it's a very competitive market, almost perfectly competitive. Yeah. If you think you've got a product that you're selling to a particular segment that you've got absolute defensibility of, there will be six more within a year. So it is going to ultimately be about the platform and relinquishing control to the consumer. And and, and loyalty, building loyalty. And, loyalty. and other, other services. You know, the, the pouch mail release that we've got in beta testing at the moment with early birds um, is designed to be an email address for insurance. Now, will, will it work? Will it not work? It's, it's actually fascinating to watch how people are using it. But take something like a car insurance purchase. You go to two comparison sites, two direct insurers, maybe pick one of the comparison sites insurers. You've got five people with your email. Come next May, GDPR is going to have a bit of a hand in what they can and can't do after that. You might have checked a box you've not realised. So there's going to potentially open up you know, customer friend products you know, where you can actually act as a service provider or, or almost be a policeman um, of that industry and that obligation to consumers so if that's used properly that has a positive effect that people are going to start spreading word of mouth about and it's not about selling and that actually has an advantage as well because there are a number of times i've missed emails which is like your insurance needs renewing and by the way we're going to charge you another 150 pounds and i don't realize until the money goes out of my account i'm like wait what and then i have to go back and find the email in my spam box you know if you're paying premium on pouch next year maybe you could have someone policing that and looking for those moments for you or have an ai program if you have the capability to, to do it yeah so i think that's the you know to 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 summarize and move on uh, I guess it's 
you know, we're seeing this in a couple of other, other industries as well, you know, particularly in the banking space. We're seeing people moving from the creation of a product that you buy once mm-hmm. to a service that you get value from every day. Mm-hmm. And I think that's things like the, the, the patch product you're referring to sounds like something that I would get benefit from not just the day that I buy it, but every day where it's relevant, which I think is the, the great thing about what we're seeing in this space and probably a nice place to wrap up. So we'll move on to now what's happened in the news. So, uh, first up in the news, we have a story on BBC News. We went for like a big top one straight away there, Sarah, didn't we? Like no nonsense, like straight in with one of the big boys. And this is insurance gap penalizes poor households. Kind of feels like it's sort of a bit of a being kicked while you're down on this one. What do you think? I think, yeah, I think there's a couple of things here. I think that there is... A, like um, a knowledge gap that's appeared. So I, I kind of think that if you look at our parents' generation and the generation before that, um, everybody owned a house. And when you bought a house, you knew you had to buy insurance. And, and that was in everybody's minds. And, and that was kind of how it was done. And then we've moved into this kind of... But this is this article in particular is talking about uh, people on low income and people who rent, <laughs> as a lot of people, as most people on low income do, um, and about how they have no content insurance. But I think actually the point is they don't know that they need content insurance to start with. And that's because primarily people didn't rent before um we were thinking about this and looking at what lemonade have done in the u.s and you know they they have made a, a business a huge business out of selling renters insurance which is effectively our equivalent of content insurance to uh people in in new york obviously can't afford to buy for as little as five dollars mm-hmm. um and the way that they've done that is go out and just you know word of mouth but also bringing that price down at the same time and both of those together have have helped to fill backfill that knowledge gap and the point being that um it kind of it is kicking people off their down but i think that they're they're down in two ways one is that they can't afford the insurance the other is they don't know they need yeah. the insurance well and i like i have you know there's a bunch of insurances that you have to have like mm. to drive a yeah. car to as an instance for a type thing just mm. in case there's anybody out there who doesn't then that that's a necessary <laughs> thing um it's a legal requirement it is but like I say, content insurance is kind of like a bit of a, do you want to take the risk of there being a problem? Do you not want to take the risk of that? Like, I have it because I think my mum, talking about my mum now, basically told me I should have it and I didn't yeah. question it and I'm still doing it now as like, a, you know, I'm, I'm an adult now. I should be able to make my own decisions, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we, um, so when I went to uni, we got uh, content insurance with our accommodation the first year. I think that's quite a common model, but I also think that there are an awful lot of people whose parents or whose maintenance grown, groans, loans pay for pay for their accommodation that and that includes the insurance. Um, I think I think it is kind of the education piece is really fascinating as well because people, as you say, like if you don't have travel insurance, it's very rare. And if you're that you'll actually get sick, and if you're in Europe, actually you're covered. Um, you know what other things might you insure? Well, your phone or your laptop. But a lot of people are prepared to take the risk there. But with contents, I think people don't actually have it in their head. So I was talking to to a couple of people who I work with who are both under the age of twenty five. And I asked them if they had any insurance. They said, no, no insurance at all on anything, either of them. And I said, well, what if your flat burnt down and every item of clothing you own and every item of jewellery and every pair of shoes went with it? What would you do? And they were like, the look on their little faces, honestly, I felt terrible. Wow, but they shattering some dreams there. <laughs> like- but, they, but they actually didn't understand that that's what content insurance was. And once put in that perspective, it suddenly became far more important than insuring a mobile phone or travel insurance or, or you know, health insurance, which some people have in this country. So tips for insurers, lead on fear. You might be able to educate <laughs> those young'uns what to do. So uh, moving on, we have a story on Insurance Business Magazine. And this is insurers warn, warned to assess 
less data exposures ahead of GDPR. Now, it seems like the whole world is kind of pretty much freaking out about GDPR now, being able to keep up with what's actually happening, having to change the way in which they're approaching doing elements of data capture and also the marketing Mm -hmm. off the back of it. Um, But it seems like the insurance space seems to be particularly exposed, which is never a good thing, really. No, I mean, there's two two ways in which the insurers are exposed as far as this article points out. One is that the one we all know is, you know, you have to better manage data or we will find you, um, said the EU every time. And they don't seem uh, to be messing about with that stuff, do they? No, I mean, the numbers are, are terrifying, the, 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 the levels those fines can go up to. But the second, I think, possibly more interesting point that this article makes is that actually insurers are doubly exposed because the way that a lot of their policies are written at the moment... If they don't update them in time to match GDPR, they will suddenly be liable for a load to paying out on a load of claims. But basically down to like the terminology they use and the gaps and things that are and aren't covered that don't match up. Um, so they're having to sort of you know backtrack and that's an awful lot of policies to rewrite and change terminologies in and I don't even know how you do that. So is this a technical problem again? Because you know we've seen you know, lots of large investments being sort of put forward and there's the, the always the quotes of, you know, 70, 90% is based on just adhering to legislation. So is this archaic technology systems that is making it difficult for these guys to, to make these changes to the policies or is it literally the legal process and the people process or do we need a, a thousand monkeys with a thousand typewriters to kind of keep up with this stuff? I think that's probably the solution. But what this article was insinuating was that the insurers didn't actually know. They, didn't, they weren't actually aware of what they were suddenly liable for, if that makes sense, if the insurers are liable, but you know what I mean. Ignorance not being bliss then. Um, Last story that we've got is uh, on Insurance Times, and this is, and probably not a surprise to anybody who listens to any of the podcasts that we do, but this is Amazon could pose a huge threat to insurers like duh. <laughs> yeah I mean the interesting thing here is that I've heard this said twice in the last week once by somebody very senior at AXA and a second time by somebody very senior at Santander who when asked you know are the tech giants coming for you both said Amazon is we don't fear Google right now and we don't fear Facebook right now but my god are we terrified of Amazon Mm. Well, I think I think Amazon's moving to business accounts and everything mm. there really hard into that side of things. I think it is an interesting view and, and what they're, you know, they're going to be governed by the same sort of regulation that everybody is from a data perspective. But actually, they seem to be able to do more things with it quicker and actually infer more information to enact on the customer experience a lot better than any big you know, financial services organization does ever really. Well, I mean, and also, you know, excluding our, our Chinese friends, Amazon actually sells stuffs, don't they, David? You know they sell stuff. Do they sell stuff to you by any chance? They sell lots of stuff to um, me. I think the, the business threat to us is probably me spending all of our money on it, which is probably a good point to wrap up here. So on the last part of what we're doing today, we have an interview with Sasha Winscheck, who is the CEO and founder of Fuel. So let's have a listen to the interview. Welcome to InsureTech Insider Interviews, coming to you from WeWork in London. I'm Simon Taylor from 11FS, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Sasha Wischek, CEO and founder of Fuel, an application that is able to track its users' fitness level and provides real-time analytics and guidance. Sasha, thanks for being on the show. How are you, sir? Pleasure. Uh, very well, very well. A uh, bit, bit snow around here, but that's to be expected here in Finland. 
otherwise all fueled up for the interview fueled up for the interview and uh if you that sort of speaks to an interesting spelling of your name it's like f-j-u-u-l there's some there's some nordic background there there's some fuel um let me tell me the story tell me how you came into wanting to build a startup what problem did you see and what was bothering you about the world and you you thought right you know what we need a company for this what what's that background yeah it was in somewhere 2013 you know when um, well i was already working in the in the healthcare space for for consulting company and then i realized that you know having made all those crazy charts looking into the future i thought healthcare is going to be a hot topic and a major problem for us as a society in the future and uh, so what i realized pretty much uh, and i think nothing much much has changed uh, today is that there's been a lot of solutions you know for either sort of let's call it sick people uh, or then very active people and uh, we wanted to have this you know idea to bring let's say fitness to everyday people in everyday life uh, and making this experience more meaningful and rewarding and uh, and i think that where fuel was born so fuel the name is basically you know the fuel the kinetic energy of your body and uh, that's actually how this whole thing came out came about so when you say bringing fitness to everyday life what does that actually mean we're we talking about Fitbit fitness trackers, like, what is this quantified self stuff? Like, what's actually happening? Uh, yeah, first of all, I mean, if you talk Fitbit and the likes, it means you have to have an external tracker. And uh, let's say for the normal Jane and Jack average, it's a question of why should I get one if I don't know if I use it, you know? And so we wanted to make, you know, it's, it, so in a certain sense, it's a barrier, you know, and some people might feel intimidated as well if they're not yet the sporty people, you know? And so what we had in mind was to bring you know, this logic of this fuel logic to smartphones. So everyone can use it without any obstacle, actually just download the app and use it. And, um, and it's, you know, we still feel these 10,000 steps a day is super outdated. It's pretty meaningless. So we came, came, came up with a new metric, which we call fuel, but I tell about the scientific stuff in a minute, but uh, that's the thing, you know, and plus a lot of times this quantified self is backward looking, you know, it's like a diary and so on but it doesn't give you the dotted line in terms of the future you know what and i think personally i mean we are you know if i want to go to the uh if i want to look to to the back side of things i go to the graveyard and i don't use a fitness tracker you know so we have, we want to have a more forward looking experience and give people the motivation and hope to be more active you want to show people the future rather than tell them what they did uh, i guess and then yes. show them what their potential future could be if they do abc to try and modify behavior so they've right. they've downloaded this app and this app i guess has you're using the sensors on the device to figure stuff out about what they're up to and how active they are is, is and what give me give me an example yeah i mean let's say let's call it the use case let's say how do people use it actually in real life so of course you download the app and the key thing is that you know uh, it tracks everything in the background without using GPS and so on, so it doesn't drain your battery. And um, and it can actually recognize your movement patterns. And it, based on the intensity of your movement, it gives you a value that you should achieve per day. And we call it a healthy dose of daily activity. So you just go about your day and uh, you see all your movement mapped on an activity stream. And the system tells you, hey, just X amount of minutes to go to reach a healthy dose of activity. That's basically the number one use case. No, So no data no um, x amount of steps it's just a very personal number to say hey how many you know activities i still have to do in terms of minutes to reach my healthy dose of activity so it's like a notification kind of thing it's like you've got this much further to go you've got to get here you've got to get there yeah 
but it's also I guess you've got the option for the surprise and delight of like hey you're doing well today um hey, sure like oh you look it looks like you've done a lot of walking hey well done yeah or the other way around if you're like close to your goal the system will tell you hey just you know five minutes to go and you reach a happy day you know i mean this type of thing is more like positive reinforcement rather than like the stick and say hey you know you haven't moved for t- two days we don't have that type of things um so this push notifications and so on we are very mild on that one we still believe that intrinsically people are motivated by the system and uh and i think they are and uh, of course and then the, the other thing is that the system basically cr- grows with you so once you reach a certain level of activity of course you can beef it up and the system calibrates according to your new fitness level so there's an insurance angle here. Uh, tell me uh, how you actually make money. What's your business model? Right. So we go a bit back in history because we started as a fitness tracker and we had like about 300,000 people using the system. So very good data. Um, but, you know, if, if, if you're on the fitness tracking side, you might say the pain points are not that high, you know. And plus, it's pretty much marketing driven. You have the Under Armour, the Runtastic guys who basically absorb all the Facebook inventory you know to do commercials so as a small startup i don't think it's a sustainable business model so we said okay where are the pain points the biggest and where can we actually reach our mission to bring fuel to as many people as possible and then we figured hey insurance they have a really big pain point and they have a lot of people out there using their policies so in a way it's a good channel and a customer at the same time and um, so we morphed in a way from a fitness tracker to a full-fledged let's call it a, a, a platform digital platform that engages customers and thereby of course it creates more touch points for the insurance um, and of course then we catch a lot of real-time data that can be used for more personalized services and of course eventually preventive care you know so we catch people um, before they become chronically sick so what's the goal here are you going to acquire a lot of customers with your own fitness trackers or uh, sorry your own app here uh, is that app going to be something that you're looking to scale or do you see yourself like you say as a platform that other people can use um on in different apps and can pop up inside an insurance app and, and whatever else and it becomes more ambient no i mean we are pure b2b player um even though of course you can download the app for testing but um on the app store but we sell our platform to insurance companies life and health i should say insurance um and then basically they acquire their users i mean they're the company um the customers who hold policies right um so it's more like we build a digital bridge to the end user the end customer of of insurance companies and um and of course there are two angles again to it it's more like getting engagement getting touch points you know uh with the end user at the same time get dynamic data to see what's really happening in the portfolio. Because currently, think about life insurance. Uh, the typical uh, uh, purchasing proce- process is you go to a bank, typically. Uh, you buy a house or a flat. Then someone claps on your shoulder and says, hey, you want to buy life insurance? You say, yeah, maybe. You sign that. You sign that deal and you will never hear from your life insurance again. And that's mutually dis- disappointing for either party, you know. So we want to make that more lively and move maybe life insurance or risk from pure risk cover to more like a lifestyle product and uh, i think that's our mission yeah so that lifestyle product uh how do you help think about helping 
brands incorporate that into what they offer today because the the services they've offered via mobile apps i think have been somewhat um, thin somewhat one-dimensional maybe i i don't wish to insult them but it has been largely servicing the day-to-day uh, hey here you can register a product oh you can see your policy the app hasn't been a very rich thing it's just kind of flat data or maybe a bit of back and forth how, how do you help them grow that thinking and, and what what's your approach for that that's exactly true. It's good that you mentioned it, not me, because I don't, <laughs> I don't want to be nagging all the time. But the um, no, of course, there are two. I mean, we sell fuel in two versions. You know, if an insurance company might have an app called My Policy, um, it's pretty, as you mentioned, pretty static. I wouldn't say dumb, but it's basically just the front end with limited interaction. It's just showing my, let's call it, you know, personal data and my policy data. Um, so what we do is we have one version where we actually have an SDK, software development kit. Think about it as an as a virtual implant where we have our algorithm and we actually can put that into the app of the insurance company. That basically, A, enriches uh, the data capture and at the same time, we have our backend, our AI that can analyze that data. And so we can have two tracks that feeds it back to, uh, to, to the customer. One, to the end user, we give personal coaching and tell them you know, what they have to do to improve their healthy lives. And secondly, we have a stream to the insurance where we can say, hey, your portfolio behaves like this um, you can run some predictive analytics and make sure that you can actually hit people with the things they want. So this is like a mutual, I think. Is it yeah. just a case, though, that the um, kind of insurer is benefiting from being able to get new data? Or are they also having more touch points with their customer as well? Are they, is their brand in front of them more? That's right. I mean, let's, put, let's say better data. Currently, they don't have any data. You know, I mean, there's no way. Uh, the typical underwriting process is, you know, you are getting on a health insurance, a health check, a health assessment. Let's say if you're 20, 22, you have a BMI of 15, all, all nice and shiny. Um, and then you grow, you know, become like me, a consultant. You know, you turn 30, 35. <laughs> and then you don't have time to exercise anymore. You put all your, all your efforts into sort of making money. And so you kind of sacrifice your health for that. And, uh, and then 10 years later, you spend all the money you made to get your health back, which doesn't work, you know. Uh, so, so we basically have the transparency what actually happened in the portfolio over this course of the lifetime, which is currently not happening at all so it's almost you know think about an insurance there's a big risk portion in the portfolio that no one can quantify and foresee and i think that's what we are trying to solve um and of course at at the same time as you mentioned we try to make the customer experience more engaging more lively um for instance you know you might get a a discount on your premium so it's more attractive to use that service and you get the so-called lifestyle rewards uh, let's say gym membership organic food vouchers and so on so we're building, in a way, like a healthy ecosystem about your life. So if you're building that ecosystem of data, wouldn't it make sense for you to go direct to consumers with an insurance product rather than going B2B? Because you'd actually be more in control of that experience. Like, why why the B2B approach? Mm, well, of course, let's put it this way. Um, if we have to acquire users, it's going to be very expensive. You know, I mean, the, as an example, the user acquisition cost on Facebook has, I think, tripled in one and a half years. So for us, that would require extremely deep pockets. And we kind of compete, as I mentioned, with other um, health and fitness apps in the App Store, like Under Armour and these guys. And, you know, they don't make money with the app or so on. They make money with the clothes they promote with the app. So we would have to compete on the market. It's more like a marketing game in a nutshell. And we feel we want to actually co-create with our, with our B2B partners because then we have a view as well, you know, uh, what's happening in the five years plus time. So we just feel more comfortable, more solid, working with these people because i think it's actually a win-win yeah 
Uh, so the the Venn diagram, the crossover point between brands like Under Armour and Adidas, and then big insurance companies, your AXA, your Aviva, your uh, whomever it may be, is there a is there an opportunity to do B two B to C there uh, and actually be the sort of the middle people that are providing this new route to market for insurers via brands? Well, I mean, let's say we are in terms of technology. I mean, let's say. Device and apps and, and, and app wise, we are agnostic, so we do partially as well integrate to our platform external devices and actually external applications. Because let's say if you're a cyclist, obviously, you've most likely, if you're serious, you have Strava, so we don't want to force people to use our system, you know, for tracking. Rather, they keep Strava but feed actually the information to our system and still get these reward points. And of course, by that, you know, still the premiums. So, I think. In the end of the day, you know, it's such a big market and I think there's space uh, for a lot of us. Even though I have to say Strava and Runtasting and so on, um, the audience is different. It's already like very active people, you know, guys who run, guys who cycle seriously. And we try to catch still, let's call it the big crowd, the people you know, in the middle. Let's call it, you know, the average, the normal people. So, um, but I, of course, you know, I think there's a chance to, I mean... In the end of the day, we want to make people uh, more active and we have different interests. You know, I mean, the insurance, of course, they cover, take it from a risk perspective. Runtastic want to sell more, nowadays, more sort of uh, Adidas clothes, right? So it goes Under Armour. So I'm not, I don't think it's conflicting. It's rather sort of synergetic, you know? Yeah. You know, it, it, it it struck me as an as an interesting avenue for somebody to be able to take a ready package proposition, but you are uh, it is also a two sided marketplace, which is always a, a hard thing to do. Uh, so tell me a little bit about the um, insure tech insurance and technology market. Do you think that um, insurers are opening up to these sorts of proposition, and what are you hearing when you talk to the larger insurance groups? Yeah, I think well, let's say two years back in time, you know. People were just slamming the door in front of me. <laughs> there's, you know, there was a. It's called a certain, still a certain complacency. I think now there's a big, a bit of an awakening, and you can actually see it. Um, you know, I've just come back from Switzerland, so there's a lot of applications already out there from insurance companies that try to engage people more than just giving policies on the app. So they are, let's say, already one step or one one foot in the market, and I think for us it makes it so much easier because the market has already opened up. You know, and it's. To whomever I speak in an insurance, there's always something on a roadmap that's similar to our solution. Um, uh, so I think timing is, as always, it's, it's, it's an issue. But I think clearly now the market is ready for it. And as well, actually, the end users are ready for it, you know. And, Do you uh, think so, there's a risk of uh, what I like to call not invented here syndrome, which is where an insurer looks at that and goes, well, we have a lab. We could do this ourselves. And what would you say to them if they said that? Good luck. <laughs> <I would say. laughs> no, you know, I've been as somebody who worked in a large bank for many years who used to say that quite a lot, I can tell you that that's probably a good response. <laughs> yeah, it's always make or buy, but to be honest, I mean, we shouldn't forget we we've been in this I mean, we're coming from the fitness side of things from the end user. So I think there's a certain learning involved. We've tuned the system, the retention is so high, our users move five times more than average. Let's say there's a certain secret source that we have figured and you can only get it by trial and error you know it's not that you have a big organization and you just put something out and all of a sudden you have you have that solution in your hands it's just it's it's a path you go you know and you learn and iterate um and second to that i guess mm, i haven't mentioned what's the really the real core of fuel but you know as opposed to these ten thousand steps we have actually an algorithm that can measure real activity and uh, data and rich data that actually can be used for more 
let's say, uh, simulation purposes. Let's say, we, we, for instance, we measure a unit called MET, metabolic equivalent of task, which is typically what you should do if you, if you follow health and, and, and life science journals, you know, and, and sports science. Plus, we measure, you know, if you have the heart rate data, we measure VO2 max, which is, in a nutshell, the capacity of your heart uh, to consume oxygen. All that stuff is pretty scientific and pretty complicated. It doesn't show on the app, and that's the purpose. You know, we don't throw it to our end users. But in the end of the day, there's so many parameters that we have over the years tuned and fixed to get to this point. So um, uh, I, I'm pretty confident that uh, it's not too easy to replicate. You know. So, so there's a couple of things there that, that that come out as key, which is you've come from the fitness industry and sports science, so you specialize the data around sports science itself and and there's a richness of that data quality both for the user themselves and for the insurer and secondly from coming from that you're designing around somebody's fitness needs not that necessarily just their insurance needs so you then let the insurer insure but you're providing them the data they need with something that somebody who cares about their fitness may also want to see and and is, is a bit more cutting edge that's right that's right and um, and the third component is you know it comes back to your previous question. I think the market is now ready. It's a bit of a domino effect. You know, the big guys coming out. So uh, I would say in the next one, two years, there will be a lot of uh, applications and solutions from insurance uh, in, in the market. And then this make or buy, it's always, it, it has always a time-to-market component. You know, I mean, you, I mean, if there's a ready-made solution like ours where we wouldn't require any, any integration to legacy systems and so on, you can technically you can be up and running in a week. So I think then the question is, do you want to explore that in-house two years and three years, or you want to take it and do it and try it in the market? You know, because I think, in the end of the day, every every month you wait is every month you don't get data that you can't basically mirror your assumptions you might have in your in your biometric data. I think so it's I think an interesting question. All. Yeah, is is why wouldn't you trial this with a thousand customers and see if it um, made them more profitable, more active customers, or you had some other kind of business case benefits for it? What's the what's the risk of trialing this for three months with a thousand people, and what's the cost of it versus spending two years trying to build it and spending X million? I think it's there's an interesting question to think about. But you're based in Finland. Are you available worldwide? Uh, yeah, the app is available worldwide, and and uh, you know on the Play Store, Google, and on iOS on, on the App Store. Um, we have two versions. We have the basic version, uh, which is the casual track, and then we have the premium version where you need external hardware like the Apple Watch. It's more like a, a fitness coach. Um, so that's available, um, but it's basically then just the the app itself. It's not loaded with rewards and the the premium discounts and so on from the insurance. So, but it's just like. Uh, you know, we keep it still live and, and see how, you, I mean, that's, again, you know, we want to learn from the market and from our users. And, uh, yeah, it's, and now, of course, we are going to Switzerland, open an office there. So a bit closer to mainland, you know, <laughs> as well. But let's say a company in the UK or the Netherlands or somewhere across Europe or even uh, Asia Pacific wanted to talk to you guys. They How would they reach out to you? Well, I mean, uh, obviously they would get in touch with me. I'm doing the most of the BD work. Um, and, then of course we will discuss you know what they have in mind um technically maybe we have to walk through how it works you know it's you don't i mean virtually can be we can actually enable the system so we don't have to physically be where the insurance is you know so we the only thing you have to do as an insurance you have to promote your service let's call it smart life or smart health insurance um and then we enable everything else you know so technically how it works is you as an end user end customer of an insurance 
you would get an SMS or an email saying, you know, this is a new offering. You press that link, you will be directed to the App Store, you download Fuel, and then immediately the Fuel applications turn into the insurance application, and it starts tracking, and it uploads all the rewards and the campaigns and so on. So that's it, you know. I mean, then you're up, up and running. So it's, it's, very, it's a SaaS model, software as a service model. So that's actually, you know, how we can actually do it virtually as well. Sasha, thank you. Before I let you go, I'm just going to ask you a couple of questions we ask everybody um, because there's uh, obviously a lot of people that are looking from the insurance market to figure out how they can use technology and, and how they can uh, kind of get into that side of the insurance market a little bit more. Uh, so tell me a little bit about you know, what's the best career advice you've ever received and uh, what's your number one productivity tip? Uh, yeah, career advice. A lot of people have given the wrong advice, which means, you know, they said, hey, if you want to be a startup entrepreneur, you have to basically do it full throttle. You have to leave your job, do it, you know, tomorrow, Monday morning, and then give it all your heart and, and so on. It's a nice theory, but quite frankly, it's a bit risky, you know. So my advice would be as well that, and I think that's what one guy actually encouraged me to do, was to say, hey, why not if you have a certain idea, you know, uh, why would you leave your job if you can actually check that hypothesis at the same time while working, you know? You can talk to people. You might even launch a bit of a prototype that you work on on a weekend on. And then you can at least have a certain confidence. Once you jump, you see there's a demand for it, you know? I mean, that would be a good advice, I think. So, um, and in terms of productivity, um, I mean, you mean on a daily basis? I mean, or productivity for myself or for a company? Uh, for yourself, really. Well, of course, you know, I'm into sports. I have to be, you know, <laughs> you have to, you have to live, you know, you know, by the fuel rules. So there's always, of course, you know, how I go about my days. Um, well, there's, let's say, typically they say people, you know, if you get up, you know, you have, before you go breakfast, you have a run or whatever sports an hour and then you boost your day. I think science tells you differently. <laughs> so my productivity advice would be before you do that, um, you know, you just do your work two, three days, have a good breakfast. And when you feel your energy is dropping, then you go for a run or for a good walk. I think you reverse. I think what I've learned, that's boost productivity much more. You know? uh, that's interesting. Bit... Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm a believer in the same thing. Get, get some yeah. fuel in. <laughs> yeah, right. You, know? you shouldn't have 10x, of course, before you go running, but maybe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Sasha, thank you so much for your time today. Um, where can people reach out to you? On LinkedIn, Twitter? What's your website? Yeah, website is uh, fuel.com. Uh, and LinkedIn, of course, I'm on LinkedIn and Sasha at fuel.com, S-A-S-C-H-A, uh, fuel.com. You can reach me as and well. And fuel, I guess, is the interesting spelling. It's F-J-U-U-L, um, in case it confuses yeah, anybody. <laughs> Sasha, that's been really fun. Thank you for joining us on InsureTech Insider. So that wraps up another InsureTech Insider. Thanks to all of our guests, James, Sasha, and as always, Sarah, thanks for coming along. Anytime. Uh, sorry that Nigel couldn't make it, but Nigel will be back with us next week, I'm sure. As always, if you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes and make sure you subscribe. If you have any suggestions for feedback, please reach out to us on Twitter or on podcast at 11fs.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.